This evening I want to focus our attention on verses 16 through 18, but uh, we'll pick up the reading at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, if you haven't found that yet, it's on page 1,276, beginning at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, reference to the Lord Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abram. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This morning we looked from this letter to the Hebrews uh, regarding what it said about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, that Jesus has become like us in every way, yet without sin, that since we have flesh and blood, our Lord Jesus took upon Himself flesh and blood. He became man. He who was God and the second person of the Holy Trinity left the glory of heaven and came to earth to become one of us. And this morning we noticed that the reason that the Lord Jesus became man was in part so that he might destroy the devil, him who has the power of death, and that he might deliver his people from the tyranny of Satan and from their own fear of death. And so it was quite a violent work that the Lord Jesus has come to do. In our humanity, as the God-man, He has destroyed the devil, and He has delivered us. Well, the writer to the Hebrews continues on the same theme of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ in verses 16 through 18. And this evening, we want to look again at what the Lord Jesus does in our flesh, having become like us. And we'll see that He comes in order to be a high priest in relation to God, and he also comes to serve his people. So where does it speak about the incarnation? Well, it's obviously there in verse 17 where it speaks about how the Lord Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's undoubtedly incarnation language, that Jesus has become man, that he has taken upon himself everything that makes us human except without sin, that He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He took the DNA from His mother. He was like His brothers, similar to them in many respects, because He became like us. But it's not only there found in verse 17, though it's there most clearly, But you also find it in verse 16, though that is obscured in the ESV. 
You'll read there in the ESV that for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And the word behind the translation helps is the word to take a hold of. And the idea that the ESV is suggesting is that Jesus takes a hold of, not angels, but he takes a hold of humans in order to help them. So, for instance, you might be walking down a street and you see an old woman who's hesitating to cross the street, and so you take a hold of her, you grab her by the arm, you stop the traffic, and you walk her across the street. You take her in order to help her. That's how the ESV gets this translation, that it is not angels that he helps, but the helps the offspring of Abram. But I think it's better to translate that word in another way, to just leave it as it is. For surely it is not angels that he takes a hold of, but he takes a hold of the offspring of Abram. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is that Jesus has not taken the nature of angels. He did not become angelic when he came to earth, but he became human. He took the nature of the sons of Abraham. He became a human. He assumed the human nature. And I think that's how we understand these verses, to again underscore what he has said previously, since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same that he has entered our human family, that he is not ashamed to call humans his brothers, that when we gather for worship, Christ is gathering with us in order to tell of his Father's name to his brothers. And in the midst of our congregation, he sings praise to us, or he sings praise with us. He, as the human, as the perfect man, he puts his trust in his Father, just as we do. And he presents us to the Father as he says, here am I, behold, I and the children who are the same as me, flesh and blood with me, here we are standing before you. It is Jesus taking on himself our human flesh. And I think it's important to note a couple of things about the way that the writer to the Hebrews says it. First, he says that he takes hold of the seed of Abraham. Now, why wouldn't he say that he takes hold of the seed of Adam? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. First of all, it's because the, the letter to the Hebrews is written to, to those who descended biologically from Abram. They are Abram's descendants. They are Jews, according to the flesh. And so he's speaking about how the Lord Jesus is identifying himself with them particularly. But I think it's also because of the great promise that was given to Abram. You'll remember it from Genesis 12, that God says that he would bless Abram and make him a blessing, and whoever curses Abram, God would curse. He would make him a great nation, give him a great name, so that in him all the families of the nations might be blessed. So that this is highlighting not only that Jesus has come in order to help those who are biologically the descendants of Abram. But he has come to be a blessing to all those who are the seed of Abram, both Jews and Gentiles. Because as Paul says in Galatians, 
whoever believes in Jesus is of the offspring of Abram. And so it highlights both that Jesus has come in uh, to, to be a member of the, the Jewish family particularly, but also he has become a member of that human family to bring blessing to all the families of the world. So that's the first thing to understand, that the incarnation has universal impact, not just for the Jews, but for the Jews and Gentiles. But also I want to highlight for you what it says in verse 16, at least as it's translated properly. For surely it is not angels that he takes hold of, but he takes hold of the seed of Abram. Now, the point I want to drive home here is that in order for him to take a hold of the seed of Abram, that is, in order for him to become human, he must have previously existed. He couldn't take hold of anything if he didn't exist beforehand. You see this also in verse 14, that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, Jesus existed before his incarnation. We celebrate his birth from some 2,000 years ago, but, but even before his birth, Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, as a, a, a person in the Holy Godhead, was from everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning of days or end of lives. He is as eternal as the Father, and the Spirit is eternal. And it is that second person, the eternal Son of God, who assumed, who took to himself, who took a hold of the human nature that we ourselves experience. So that Jesus is not only truly man, he is also simultaneously truly God. He is the God-man. And so again, we see in verses 16 and 17, the writer's elucidation of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. But why does he need to become man? Well, we're told that in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So there's the answer. In order to be a high priest, Jesus must become man. Now think of it this way. I found this was very helpful as I pondered this this week. We speak about the offices of the Lord Jesus as prophet and priest and king. And so we say that Jesus as prophet teaches us by his word and by his spirit. But Jesus does not need to become a man in order to be our prophet. He was our prophet or the prophet of his people before his incarnation in the Old Testament. He spoke at, to the prophets or to the people through the prophets and by his spirit who was active in the Old Testament. And he could continue to do so. He doesn't have to come to earth. He doesn't have to share our nation, our nature to be our prophet. He could be our prophet simply as God. And similarly with regard to his kingship. He could rule over us without becoming 
one of us because he is the sovereign. It's not his humanity that gives him a right to kingship. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords simply because he is. And before him and besides him, there is no other. So that he doesn't need to become a man in order to be our king. But he must become a man in order to be our priest. Why is that? Because as the priest, he must suffer and die. And in order to suffer and die, our Lord Jesus needed to take to himself a human nature. Because had he remained simply God, he could not suffer because God does not suffer. And, and had he remained God, he could not die because God is immortal. He is unable to die. He exists from everlasting to everlasting without any change whatsoever. But if he's going to be our high priest, he must suffer and die. And therefore, it was absolutely necessary for Jesus. It was, as the writer says in verse 10, it was fitting. It made all the sense in the world that if Jesus is going to be our high priest and suffer and die on our behalf, then he must become like us. He must share a nature that is able to suffer and a nature that is able to die. To be our priest, he must be the God-man. But the incarnation is necessary not only for him to be a priest, but it's also necessary for him to be the kind of priest that we need. And notice what it says there in verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Not simply that he might become a high priest in service to God, but that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. So he needed to share our humanity. He needed to identify with us so that he might be merciful and faithful. Now you say, was, was God not merciful? Well, of course God was merciful. God has been merciful ever since. He saw Adam and Eve fall into sin in the garden. It was God, you remember, who took the initiative. Adam and Eve ran from God, but God ran to him, uh, to them rather. It was God who showed kindness. It was God who showed compassion and, and pity. And uh, we see the same in our Lord Jesus. As the second person of the Trinity, of course he's compassionate. But the point here is that he had to become a human in order to be compassionate as the God-man, in order to have a particular compassion for us. Because he understands our situation He has walked in our shoes. He has lived the life that we live. And he knows the hardships and trials and difficulties. And because he knows them, having experienced them in his own life, it makes him a more merciful and compassionate Savior. So the Lord Jesus understands what it's like to be rejected by others to have other people be unkind to him. His family thought he was crazy. His disciples forsook him. His, his own people cried out for his crucifixion. The Romans impaled him upon a cross. He understands what it's like to be rejected. 
He knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty and tired because he, he shared our human nature. He has experienced all these things. And so when you cry out how tired you are, you don't think you can go on. He gets it because he too was tired. And when you're going through difficulties and trials, when Satan is harassing you and relentlessly attacking you, he can say, I know what it's like. I've been there. And so he can identify not only in our humanity, but also in our weaknesses, in our troubles, in our struggles, all, of course, without any sin because he was the sinless one. But he understands our life. That's why he needed to become like us. That's why there needed to be boots on the ground, not, so that he, not only so that he would become a priest, our priest, but because, so that he would become a merciful high priest, but also a faithful one. It was imperative that our Lord Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will, and he did all the way to the end. He was obedient even to the death of the cross, even when his Father asked him to do something Jesus could not desire to do. There's no way that the holy, sinless God-man could ever wish to experience judgment from his Father and alienation and be forsaken from him or by him. And yet, that's what the Father asked him to do. And Jesus was faithful even to that as he cries out in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. He would give everything in order to be obedient to his heavenly Father. He was faithful to the end. And of course, that's so important for him to be our high priest. That's what qualifies him, not only that he is merciful and can identify with us, but also that he is faithful. Because if our Lord were unfaithful, He could never be our high priest because he himself would need a high priest. A sinner could never reconcile us to a holy God because a sinner would need a reconciler himself. And so he enters into our humanity to be the kind of priest that we need, a merciful one and a faithful one, faithful to the end. Well, then how does he serve as our high priest? And the writer to the Hebrews gives us two aspects from which to think of the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus. The first is what he does for us in relation to God, and the second is what he does simply for us. You can see the distinction here in verse 17, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So, what does he do in the service of God? Well, we're told he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. That, of course, is what Jerry Bridges would call an eight-cylinder word. It's a big word, propitiation. And what does it mean? Well, let me try to help you understand it. So, our sin demands the judgment and wrath of God. 
God is angry with the wicked every day. And this anger is not an anger like ours, a fly-off-the-handle type of anger, an anger that erupts when your little girl does what little boys and girls have done throughout the history of the world at your dining room table, spill your milk or spill her milk or spill her water, and you become incensed and you say things that you should not say, you lose control of yourself. To think of God's wrath and anger in that way is blasphemous. That's not the way it is at all. But God's wrath is his settled, determined response to human sin and to the breaking of his law. And he has said that the soul that sins shall surely die. And he pours out upon his sinful people the judgment, the curse of a broken law that their sin deserves. And so that's what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God. And the epitome of God's wrath is eternity in hell, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and separation from the grace and favor of God, but not separation from the judgment of God. It is experienced unendingly. Now, here's the great thing. Our Lord Jesus becomes like us in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. So he sees us in our dilemma. He understands what we deserve. No one understood the wrath of God like our Lord Jesus does because he understands the holiness of God and that the holiness of God demands judgment. He understands that because he himself is God, and so he sees the human dilemma. He grasps it, and in tender mercy, he offers himself to be the propitiation, to take upon himself the judgment that his people's sin deserves. And so on the cross... He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus has an eternity of outer darkness that is consolidated in three hours of darkness on the cross. And on the cross, the Lord Jesus experiences the curse that the broken law demands. That's how the Lord Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He turns aside the wrath of God, not so that we and he could avoid it. No, he turns aside the wrath of God by absorbing it in himself so that he becomes the one who satisfies the holy requirement of God to pour out judgment upon sinners. He takes that into himself. I thought that perhaps for our young men and young adults, male young adults, female young adults as well, if they play ice hockey, that perhaps this could be uh, an illustration to help you. Imagine that uh, uh, Bouchard, I think his name is, the Bouchbaum, that he's at the, at the, uh, at the blue line, and uh, he winds up. It's uh, a pass comes to him. It's going to be a one-timer, and he, he unleashes the puck, and uh, it's going to hit the goalie, and it's going to do damage to the goalie because of where it's going to hit the goalie. And somehow a defenseman sees this, 
and he's concerned about his goalie. He's kind. He's a compassionate defenseman. He doesn't want his goalie to get hurt. And so he inserts himself between the puck and his goaltender and takes the blow himself. 93-mile-an-hour slap shot. He takes it himself. (laughs) And that's exactly what our Lord Jesus has done. He knows the fierceness of God's judgment. Remember? Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, if it is possible, let this cup pass. You know what cup he was talking about? It's the cup of wrath. The one that God presses into the hands of the wicked and says, you must drink this. It'll, it'll make you staker, but you must drink this because this is what you deserve. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father presses into the hand of his Son, his sinless Son, the cup of wrath, and says, you must drink this. And Jesus says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will. Your will be done. And that's what he does. He resigns himself to the will of his Father And he becomes responsible for all of the wickedness and infelicities and and all the unkindness and all the harshness and all the cruelty and all the disobedience of his people. And then he becomes liable to that cup of God's wrath and he must drink it to its dregs. And it's not a cup that is watered down wrath. It's not as if the father says, I love you, my son but you must drink this, but, but let me make it easier for you. Let me sweeten the cup. No, it's a full, bitter cup of wrath. God did not spare his son, but he made him drink the cup of wrath. And the Lord Jesus wasn't coerced to drink the cup. He, it was pressed into his hand, and he willingly took it, and he, he drank it. And in drinking, he becomes the propitiation for our sins. He experiences the wrath so that we don't experience it. I uh, came across this quote from Philip Edgecombe Hughes this week. Listen to this. You could memorize this. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, our hell he made his, that his heaven might be ours. Is that just brilliant? Astonishing. Our hell he made his so that his heaven might be ours. Well, that's the first thing. It's a marvelous thing. Why did the Lord Jesus become man? So that he could be the propitiation for our sins, so that he could insert himself so that we might be spared the wrath of God. He, our hell, he made his so that his heaven could become ours. But that's in service to God. But there's another way that our Lord Jesus as high priest serves us, and that you'll find in verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, those who are being tempted, of course, refers to all believers because this is what it means to be a believer. We travel through this world, and it is the wilderness, the wilderness that the Israelites went through. And through the wilderness, it's a time of 
testing, a time of temptation. Satan harasses us. He attacks us. He undermines us. He tries to dissuade us from devotion to the Lord, distract us from serving the Lord. He, gives, he tries to, to get us to give in, to sin, to, to just do whatever our flesh wants to do, to feel the pressure of the world and to capitulate to the world and to do the things that the world does. It's a hard life, the Christian life. It's the best life. You wouldn't want to trade it for anything, but it's a hard life. It's a challenge day in, day out, hour by hour to fight against sin to resist, to live for God, to, to not only face the attacks from without Satan and the world, but also to face relentlessly the attacks from within the flesh, which is still within the believer, the residue of sin that always wants the things that displease God. It is a hard life. But you're not alone. Why not? Well, because Jesus, the high priest, has become man in order to, to help you in your temptations. Oh, you say, but, uh, but he doesn't understand my life. He doesn't understand the hardships and the trials that I go through. Why not? Well, because he's God. Yes, he is God, but he's the God-man, remember. He, he knows what it's like to face the weakness of the body. He knows what it's like to face the attacks of Satan. He's, he's not ignorant. He's able to sympathize with you because, because he himself underwent it. He, as it says here, he himself has suffered when tempted. So he is able to help you when you are being tempted. Oh, but you say, uh, he's God, so, so he couldn't sin. So, so so how strong were those temptations? He couldn't give in to them anyway, even if he wanted to. So they aren't real temptations. Well, no, no it's, it's not true. They, they were real temptations. Of course, because Jesus was sinless, because he's God after all, the temptations that he experienced always came from without. They were because of the cruelty of others the pain they inflicted on him, or the assaults of, of, of Satan. But our temptations, of course, come not only from without, but they also come from within. It's, it's our heart, our, 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 our flesh that, that longs to do what is wrong. And so we have uh, uh, opportunity without, uh, which matches our inclination within. And, and so we give in to temptation. Jesus only had opportunity. He never had inclination to sin because he was holy. And yet... Jesus understands our temptations better than you think he does. Because the way to sympathize with people in their temptations is not to join them in giving in, but to persistently resist them. And this is what our Lord did. He fought against sin. He resisted when, when, Satan, when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, remember our Lord Jesus. When he, when he was tempted to, to make bread out of the stones, remember our Lord Jesus famished, 40 days of fasting, hungry. His body craved food. That's no sin for a body to crave food. His body craved food. And here's an opportunity. Command these stones to become bread. And in his human nature, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus resisted. It's not like... No big deal. I'm God. Doesn't affect me whatsoever. God doesn't get hungry. 
So, so, so you can tempt me all the, all, as much as you want to make these, these stones into bread, but it's not going to affect me at all. No, 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 he was tempted in his humanity, and in his humanity, he craved food. And yet he resisted the devil, said, no, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he knows what it's like to be tempted. Why do you think? Why do you think the Garden of Gethsemane was, was such an intense experience for our Lord Jesus? Because Satan was doing then what Satan had done earlier. Remember how, how our Lord Jesus announced uh, that uh, he was going to go up to Jerusalem and they were going to, uh, the, the, the priests and the scribes were going to uh, mock him and kill him. And then on the third day, he was going to rise from the dead. And then, and then Peter says, not a chance. It's never going to happen to you. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God. You see, that was Peter's attempt or Satan's attempt to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And there would have been nothing more pleasant for our Lord Jesus than to avoid the cross. That's why he speaks with such vehemence to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Don't do Satan's work. He does it himself sufficiently, trying to get me to avoid the cross, which is the very thing I would love to do and wish I could do. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan again attacks him because he knows that if Christ doesn't go to the cross, then the victory is his. But Jesus resisted that temptation. He resisted it so intensely that he sweat blood. So don't say, don't say the Lord Jesus doesn't understand what it's like to be tempted. He understands better than you think he does. Because uh, resisting temptation is how you understand the strength of temptation. Imagine, uh, children, you're in the Old Man River, and you're standing there, and you feel the current try to push you along, and you resist. And you, when you resist, you feel the current. You feel the pressure of the current. How do you get rid of that pressure, which after a while can be so tiring? Well, you just give in. You just go with the flow, as they say. Well, that's the way sin is. Sin is relentless. It wants you to give in. And the way to avoid the difficulty of temptation is just to give in to temptation. But Jesus never did that. He stood his ground, and when the pressures mounted against him, he stood his ground. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And because he was victorious in his temptations, that is, because he never gave in, he's able to help you to be victorious in your temptations. When you as a little child, you see a cookie on the counter that you love to have, but you know you must not have because it hasn't been given to you. Or you have a, 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 another boy at school and you're tempted to be unkind, but you know you ought not to be unkind because that would disobey God. And you think, oh, I just love to do it. I just, just want that cookie. I just want to say what I want to say to this boy, no, even though it's going to be unkind. And the Lord Jesus will help you to resist because he knows both how to resist and how to overcome because he never gave in. 
See, he'd be of no help to you if he gave in to temptation because you know how to give in all by yourself. You don't need someone to tell you that. But you need someone to help you to resist and to overcome and be victorious. That's why Jesus is such a blessing to you. Well, how, how, does, he, how does he help us? Just, just briefly here in closing, how does the Lord Jesus help us? Well, first of all, the fact that he identifies with us in our temptation is a big, is a big help. You know, one of the things about temptation that makes temptation so alluring to us is that, that we think, well, no one understands. Like, no one's had it as bad as I've had it. And I'm all alone. Jesus said, no, no, you're not. I've had it worse than you've had it. I understand, and I will be with you. Just the sheer fact of Jesus' compassion, his mercy, is such a help to you. And then, of course, he helps you by, by giving you his word to direct you so that you understand the schemes of Satan, so you know what is right and what is wrong. That's a, that's a massive help. Imagine if you were always wondering, what should I do? I don't know what to do. Is this the right thing or that the right thing? That, that would be so weakening, so debilitating. You'd be, you'd be subject to all of Satan's lies, but he's given us his word to help us to resist temptation. And then he's given us his spirit so that uh, by His Spirit, He strengthens us. He, he enables us to say no and to say no again and again for one week and one month and one year. You can't do it in your own strength. I mean, even Adam in his perfection couldn't resist the temptation. What makes us think that we as sinners are able to re- resist it on our own? We can't, nor do we need to, because our Lord Jesus, the great high priest, helps us. He sends His Spirit to us so that we can say no to sin and yes to obedience. And then he helps us by his providence. I'm sure some of you have experienced this before. You've had a desire to do something that you knew you ought not to do, and you pursued that desire, but there was no opportunity for you to do it. So you wanted to do something wrong, but you couldn't. Maybe you wanted to get drunk, and so you went to the shops to get alcohol, but It was too late. The shops were closed. God in his providence, the Lord Jesus, your high priest, has helped you providentially by removing the temptation from you. Or perhaps there's opportunity. And usually, you would love to do what you now have the opportunity to do. But for some reason, there's just no desire to do it. You just want to go home and not participate. Why is that? (laughs) Because the Lord Jesus is helping you. He's taken away the desire from you in his providence. Or sometimes he, uh, he just takes you away by death and brings you to his everlasting kingdom, and there's no temptation there whatsoever. You'll never sin there. There's going to be no opposition, and there'll be no giving in. You will serve the Lord Jesus with perfection. What is death? except your high priest helping you when you are being tempted. Isn't this a a wonderful Savior that we have? You know, I was thinking uh, yesterday as I was finishing up, I thought, you know, there's, uh, 
there's not a lot of commands in the sermons today. There's not a lot of things you must do. Or I'm not telling you to stop doing certain things. It doesn't, it doesn't even seem to be that practical because it's all theology. It's all doctrine. And I understand it's all doctrine. But that doesn't mean it's not practical. Because what we need more than anything else is to know who our God is and to know the Lord Jesus and to know why he's come into the world and what he has done when he came in order to share our humanity. And so the one command I want to leave you with, the one obligation for this week, the one thing that I want you to do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then into next week and into next month, the one thing that you need to do is to consider Jesus. Think about him. Meditate on him. Ponder him. Let it, uh, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, who he is and what he has come to do as the God-man, let that be like a a Scottish mint, and you stick it under your tongue, and you can suck on it all day. That's what you need to do. Consider Jesus. And you will be blessed, undoubtedly. And, and And the interesting thing is that it will impact your life when you do face temptations, when you are discouraged, when you face trials, when you're harassed, when you're overwhelmed. This will answer a lot of questions. If you could only keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus, the one who shared in our humanity in order to be our high priest. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God and most gracious Father in heaven, what a gift you have given to us in your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that he served us as our great high priest, as the God-man. We thank you that our hell he made his, that his heaven might become ours. What a glorious gospel. And we pray that you would help us to ruminate on it, to think it through, to ponder it in this week. We, we know that... Uh, That's a lot harder than it seems from the words. Anyone can think of these things, but we know our wandering hearts. We know how Satan distracts us, how the world vies for our attention, how we get caught up in the day-to-day activities of our lives with with scarcely a thought of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask you, O Lord Jesus, you who have come, and to help us when we are being tempted, knowing yourself what it is to suffer when tempted. We pray that you would come and help us this week so that we might consider you for your glory and for our blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.